It was 20 years ago today when Sgt. Pepper taught the band to play the Beatles. Hello, welcome everybody. We have yet another episode of those fantastic felonious pundits for you. My name is Kentad Svensgard. Along with me, please say hello to our good friend, Mr. AJ Mass. Will we be finished? Will we be diminished when I'm 64? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think so. I think we're going to go. A while here, AJ. <laughs> Especially if they bring this show back. They're talking about bringing it back. Oh, my God. Will we have to continue it? <laughs> uh, the worst thing is that you can't watch the new episodes. <laughs> I know. Gosh. Oh, sigh. Woe is me. Anyway, folks, this is a podcast about the program Criminal Minds. Each week we recap and take an in-depth look at an episode of the show. I have never seen this show before, so that's what you're going to get from me, that first-person perspective. And meanwhile, our friend AJ is a grizzled veteran of the show. He has seen each and every episode plenty of times. And this week, AJ, we are talking about Season 3, Episode 14 of Criminal Minds. It is entitled Damaged. Damaging. Damaged, yes. <laughs> Might as well Joe, be. They don't use the title in the damn episode. <laughs> yeah, very true. This episode was uh, written and directed by our old pal, Edward Allen Bernero, and it originally aired on April 2nd, 2008. Just a programming note, that was several months after the uh, previous episode had aired. I guess maybe it was time for the mid-season break or something. Writer's uh, strike. Oh, is that what happened this year? Yeah, was that this we year? Right, okay. right. So, uh, yeah. So, all production on all shows halted, and um, they actually this was an episode that had already been written because we are they always knew they were going to be doing this episode since right. uh, we are finally dealing with all the big hush hush secrets that Rossi has been uh, holding on to since he joined the, the cast. So they're like, all right, it's time. <laughs> Let's just yeah. do it. This week we open in a trippy dippy criminal minds mode. <laughs> There's an intense heartbeat playing on the soundtrack and scary music as we hear a child scream and we see quick flash cuts going throughout a house. Then we hear more children screaming. We see a door open, flash cut, and we see blood spattered over a room and we see three small terrified kids. Then all of a sudden we cut to Rossi who's waking up in a bed from this nightmare. But before he's fully awake, he sees One of the children, the older girl in a doorway, she's got blood all over her and she's staring at him. She's looking like a a scary girl from one of those Japanese ring style movies looking at him. And then uh, he grasps at the little charm bracelet we've seen with the charms on it, with the kids names on it. We've seen it before. He grabs that off of his nightstand and uh, that's that scene. Yeah, very simple, Uh, you know, standard. uh, Ah! Open to a shop. (laughs) Exactly. We cut to an apartment, AJ, and there's the sound of a a shower going. There's an urgent knocking at the door, the kind of knocking that 
insists upon being answered because it's not going to stop till it's answered. And we see a pissed off looking Garcia coming out of the bathroom area wearing, I put down kimono, maybe it was robe, but I like, like to think it was a kimono. And uh, <laughs> so she goes over, answers the door. She's like, this better be good. And who is standing there? None other than Rossi. And he is complaining about the file she has gathered for him, saying this can't be all there is to it, to the Galen file. He knows he had more notes. Where are all his case files? What kind of researcher does Garcia think she is? And Garcia is like, uh, I'm not a researcher. I'm a technical analyst. Me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, besides, I, I, I gave you all you asked for. All of a sudden, while she's trying to explain this, our good old friend Nicholas Brendan, a.k.a. Kevin Lynch, comes butt naked out of the bathroom and uh, is like, what's going on here? He sees that Rossi is there. He covers himself up. He's quite embarrassed, obviously. And meanwhile, Garcia is trying to explain to Rossi she knows there's rules about fraternization. Rossi is really only interested in the case. He says, uh, tomorrow, you know, is the 20th anniversary of three children that woke up and found their parents murdered. Whoever did it is still out there, and it's time they paid for it. I'm like, I'm still, even after that, I was like, dude, it's been 20 years. You could have waited till morning (laughs) for this. I know you just woke up from your nightmare and you had to act, but come on. It's on his mind. Uh, I like that you you, you referenced kimono um, because... Uh, Matthew Gray Gulwer is like addicted to kimonos, and this could very well be from his own private collection. He's, really, he, he's done look, he's done documentaries, <laughs> and I, I will reference his documentaries uh, uh later on. But he had a documentary done on his life around this time this was happening. He used to be a model, and uh-huh. he's a little quirky. He has an entire kimono room in his house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, I, I, I wasn't aware. So these very well could be kimonos that he has supplied uh, his his coworkers as gifts, perhaps. I don't know, but it, it strikes me as something that quite possibly he could have done. <laughs> I also wonder why Kevin didn't hear the whole door knocking and going on. Like, would he really just walk out butt naked into the room like that? Shower, 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 shower. Okay. All right. He was in the shower. She yeah. was already out. Out, so of the she shower. heard the knocking. The okay. the, the <clears throat> postcoital. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Ooh. Ooh, it, yeah. I mean, I'm all I'm all for it, but just that word is just. <laughs> mm-hmm. So next, we cut to see scenes of what we are told Indianapolis, Indiana, and uh, we know this because, I mean, I knew it. Once we saw, see the motor uh, speedway, the that's like the only <laughs> thing I know that's going to tell me it's Indiana, right? There's it's no other. It's but sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then we uh, cut to a strip club, and we see a dancer coming out of the uh, strip club, and she's headed towards a car, and by her car, there's this skeevy-looking guy who's trying to talk to her. Apparently, he's out of money. He only had $2 left to give her. And he's kind of a creep, and she basically uh, pulls out a knife to indicate that she's not down for the whatever this guy is <laughs> wanting to pursue. And so 
the skeevy guy is still there when all of a sudden a pickup truck in the parking lot turns on its headlights and flashes it on them. And that's when the skeevy guy decides uh, he needs to leave. And the dancer just looks at the truck and she's just like, what do you want? And the truck turns off the lights. So she gets in her car and she notices on her dashboard, there's a stuffed animal. I think it was a purple monkey, maybe a dinosaur. Uh, I wasn't sure exactly what it was. It was purple. (laughs) I I, I believe, I believe it was a, uh, a representation of Gleek. (laughs) <laughs> oh, okay. The Lucy and the Fuzzy Cats in Outer Space Monkey? I don't know. Or no, uh, Wonder Twins. Wonder Twins. Wonder yes. Twins, right. Wonder Twins, right. yes. Uh, uh, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Purple monkeys, man. <laughs> she she looks at the, uh, the little stuffed toy, and she kind of looks at it in disgust and just tosses it aside and pulls out of the parking lot. And meanwhile, we see that the pickup truck has pulled in behind her and is following her. And then we cut to credits. Criminal Minds, Criminal Minds, Criminal Minds, Criminal Minds. It's Criminal Minds. Sorry, we're in Indianapolis. <laughs> yes. I got you. So next, uh, as we see more Indianapolis scenery, we get Rossi's quote to open the show. Within the core of each of us is the child we once were. This child constitutes the foundation of what we have become, who we are, and what we will be. Neuroscientist Dr. R. Joseph. Okay, sure. I mean, we, we, we're, we're going to split stories here, and uh, both are kind of sort of going to involve that theme, sort of, kind of, maybe? There's children involved. That's true. Sort of. That is true. Kind of maybe? <laughs> And we see Rossi is there driving through some residential neighborhood. Then we cut to the BAU office and Garcia is barging into JJ's office. She's really worried that she's in trouble. And JJ's like, girl, I'm busy. And uh, Garcia says, yeah, but don't you want to hear about how Rossi showed up at my apartment in the middle of the night while I was enjoying my post-coital shower? Uh, with technical analyst Kevin Lynch, <laughs> in case we forgot, she uh, <laughs> she puts it out there, and then JJ's like, "Ooh, girl, pull up a chair, let's talk." <laughs> yeah, I, I I just like the fact she's like, "No, not working at all. No, no, don't have anything else to do. Could you please? Oh, hot gas! Wow, <laughs> <Yeah>. go away." <laughs> she she makes times time for that definitely. Sit, speak. <laughs> <laughs> We then cut to Prentice, who is just arriving at her cubicle for work. And by the way, she done got her hair did. And uh, (laughs) I don't know how I feel about this look, but okay, good for her. Um, And as the camera circles around her, we see that she's noticing the open door of Rossi's office. And it is a mess. There's files thrown all over the floor. And Prentice is like, what in the hell? We then cut back to JJ and Garcia and JJ is talking her off the ledge. She's telling her she's not going to be in trouble. She says something interesting. She says, Rossi's half the reason these fraternization rules exist. He won't tell anyone. And I kind of wanted to hear what that was all about. Right. What what happened there? Uh, But then JJ starts to uh, get into why was 
what was Garcia doing for Rossi anyway? But all of a sudden her phone rings and it's Haley and she's trying to track down Hotch, who's apparently in a prison somewhere and he's got bad cell service. And JJ hangs up and says, boy, that's one pissed off lady. And Garcia asks why she would call JJ. And she says, it's because she knows I can do this. And she picks up her phone and starts dialing. And immediately we cut to an office at the aforementioned prison. Hotch and Reed are there. And Hotch answers JJ's call. He's like, yeah, yeah, JJ, uh, it's personal. I'll deal with it when I get home. Thanks. And he hangs up. Clearly, he's bothered. And Reed asks if everything's all right. And Hotch is like, Everything is hunky-dory. Yay. And Reed is like, you know what? We can put off this interview. We don't have to do it. And Hotch says, well, you know, considering this guy is getting executed next week, probably a good <laughs> idea. We just get to work. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, kind of can't put it off. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> and he really seems determined just not to let any of his personal crises interfere with the job. We then get to meet the assistant warden of the prison, Abner Merriman, who comes in and introduces himself. And he seems very excited to meet Reed. Apparently he's read some of Reed's papers and he's really into serial killers. Although this guy, Chester Hardwick, is the first one that he's met in person. And Hotch doesn't have time for the fanboying. He's like, can we just get down to business, please? Yeah, Hotch is not having a good day. I mean, yeah. you know, we don't know exactly what's going on, but, you know, Haley didn't seem uh, very uh, happy, so <laughs> Hotch ain't going to be happy right now. Exactly. We know it's not good! <laughs> <laughs> They're there anyway to interview one Chester Hardwick for one of their criminal research studies, and the warden says they don't really have any interrogation facilities, but there is a small room that they can use. He asks them if they have any weapons on them, and Hotch is basically like, dude, we've secured our weapons already when we got here. This is not our, our first time in a prison. Very snappish. Uh, and the warden gives a little chuckle and he's like, well, he supposes that true. Uh, and he doesn't confront Hotch. I I would have been like, dude, calm down. OK. Um, <laughs> well, he's a little- know, on, the, on the flip side, I mean, this warden is so eager to please. And, yes. and so there's that aspect of it. And also it's like. He's already he's already kind of apologizing for his person not being very cool. <laughs> and he's like, we're you know, we don't really have uh, the rooms that we need and all this stuff. So, um, oh, oh, no, of course, you know, you know what to do. Of course. My bad. My bad. He's very like sycophantic. He is surprised that Chester contacted them because he hasn't been very talkative to anybody there. And Hotch mentions, well, they do get talkative when they're about to die. We then cut over to our dancer from before, and she's sleeping on her couch. She's having a nightmare, and it turns out she's the girl from Rossi's nightmare. She's walking into her parents' room and finding their bloody bodies in the bed. We see that there's an axe against the wall. and She's saying, Mommy, Mommy, and there's a man there saying, Connie, Connie, and, and actually shaking her awake. And the man is her brother, Georgie. He's there. He knows exactly what dream she's having. She doesn't have to apologize for it. He knows what's up. She finds out what time it is and says uh, he's late for work. 
but apparently he got into a fight and lost his job. And then he points out the money thrown on the table that she must be a terrible stripper if she only made $53 from dancing. (laughs) Nice burn. (laughs) And (laughs) she doesn't really want to do or show the things that it would take to make more money than that. But she can't really afford to quit the job. So you get the idea that, you know, they're not living their best life. Uh, and these clearly are the are the kids from that Ross, from Rossi's case from long ago. And if we paid attention to the names, they're the kids. Also, the names that were on the charm bracelets. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's all it's all coming together. It's all making sense. Do, do I buy that Rossi's dream is identical to, <laughs> to their dreams? I mean, I'll give them a little leeway because let's face it. Uh, Rossi did stumble upon this scene, so uh, the visuals would match. I don't. Know, I just don't know if the stylistically they would match. <laughs> right. Uh, she does ask where Alicia is, which is the other sister, and Georgie says she left last night with some dude in a jeep. Uh, then Georgie spots her stuffed animal and says, "Oh, got your yearly gift, huh?" She says, "Yeah," that they left it in her car this time. And George, he has like a, a colorful baton thing filled with liquid. Uh, I, I don't know. I'll call yeah. it a baton. Yeah, it's it, left it, on his it, porch. It's a very low, low rent. Like it's not even the good kind because you have those kinds where like if you turn it, like uh, all the water and sparkles slide kind of lava lamp style to the bottom. But there's also like a sound thing in there. So it's <laughs> those it's things. Not even that yeah. kind because there's no. It's just slowly this model <laughs> liquid kind of just gives way and there's a little bit of brownian motion in there but it, oh, what a horrible toy yeah and connie is like this son of a bitch is never gonna leave us alone uh and and georgie is like uh, happy 20th anniversary right he gets up to leave and connie is just looking at the stuffed animal and she says i hate you and I thought she was clearly talking to her parents' killer, is what I thought. Okay. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. That would seem to be the logical. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we next cut to Rossi, who's outside of a house. He's giving the house the look over. Uh, clearly, this house is connected to the case. Uh, just a quick little scene of that. When, and then all of a sudden we cut back to the room at the prison where the warden is going over how they can press a little button on the door to signal the guards when they're done. And uh, then he takes a look at some of the crime scene photos that are on the table and he's shocked at them. And, he, you know, going, there's even 23 more victims like that. And Reed says, well, sometimes... The criminal will talk about crimes that they weren't even charged with, so there could even be more. And uh, the victim is, and the warden, the victim, the warden is like, uh, "Is there ever any less?" And Reed just is like, "No." And Hotch is visibly irritated. He's just like, uh, "Can you stop messing with the pictures? We need them. We need him to show us which ones are important, you know. So we kind of need to have them, you know, set up how we have them set up." And the warden does apologize, and Hotch does give him a little, like, it's okay, but you can tell Hotch was annoyed. (laughs) (laughs) 
And then uh, the door opens and the guards bring in Chester Hardwick. And they the guards ask uh, if they should keep this guy's chains on. And Reed is like, oh, yes, I think that would be best. <laughs> but, however, Hotch is like, no, take him off. We're just going to have a little chat. Right, Chester? And uh, Chester gives a little smile as he's being unchained from his cuffs and everything. Yeah, I, you know, read, read uh, humana, humana, humana. <laughs> uh, the fear that is palpable in Reed is very, very amusing to me. You're going to leave, take it away. Okay. Oh, I'm Reed. <laughs> <laughs> so next we cut back to the BAU office and Prentice, JJ, and Morgan are, are going over the mess that's in Rossi's office. JJ tells them about the interview Hotch is doing. So Morgan figures Hardwick is enough on Hotch's plate. They shouldn't bother him with this. JJ says Garcia might know what he's up to since he showed up at her place. Garcia, who was sort of outside in the office standing behind them, could hear this. And she's like, hey, look, I am not supposed to tell you what I was what, what I was working on. This is supposed to be just between me and Rossi. And Prentice points out to her the state of his office and the way it is uh, with the mess. And he's such an anal retentive guy. This is like a scream for help. So Garcia decides she's going to spill the beans. She lets them know that she's been working on this 20 year old case in Indianapolis and that he said somebody had to pay for it. He took off and left and he's already arrived there and gotten an SUV sent to him. And he's already gone and investigating and JJ says, well, you know, the jet's still available. And Morgan says, all right, let's go. Yeah, I I, I, I buy that Rossi would buy himself a plane ticket to get there and, uh, you know, pick up a, an SUV from the local office and kind of like stay at the fancy hotel and everything. I, I only wish that just because he was so obsessed and he was so out of character, I only wish he had driven all night. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you could make that trip too from Virginia to Indianapolis overnight. You could, you know, know, knocks on on, uh, Garcia's door, like, what? I gotta go. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been good. So we uh, cut back to the house that Rossi is looking at, and he's standing outside of his SUV, and a, a cop pulls up, a detective, it looks like, and he introduces himself as. Police Detective Gary Willis. And Rossi says, uh, I thought I asked for Captain Giles. Uh, uh, apparently, wow, they said Giles and and Nicholas Brendan is in this episode. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, apparently Captain Giles died a year ago and Rossi's like, oh, too bad. He was a good cop. So Detective Willis at, has the file for the case. But. Uh, he tells Rossi they've got nothing new, and Rossi seems very disappointed. And Detective Willis is like, you know, this is a 20-year-old cold case. Uh, and Rossi sort of snaps at him. When do you stop looking for a double murderer? 
And I, I kind of wanted Detective Willis to be honest here, just say a two, three years tops. <laughs> you know, like I well, kind of wanted him to give him the answer there, but <laughs> in all honesty, when the guy who's been researching it dies, <laughs> right? Exactly. We, we kind of like he was the only one who cared, and we kind of let him do it. But like nobody was. We all got our own pet projects, and this ain't ours. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I. Uh, at least, at least Rossi softens a little bit here and stops taking it out on Willis. Because at first it's just like, I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> yeah, he admits that it's not really even a, an FBI case, but he happened to be on the scene the day that the case happened. And uh, <laughs> Detective Willis says to Rossi, he probably knows more about him, about the case than he does. And he does tell him that the house he's looking at is empty. Uh, no one lives there anymore. There's a service that comes to keep it clean weekly. And Rossi is like, I know, I own it. <laughs> and, uh, uh, <laughs> we then cut to a break at that point, but then come back to write the, to the same scene right at the same spot. And Rossi is explaining to the detective that he bought the house on an auction a few years after the murder. And the money went to... The, the grandmother who was raising the kids afterwards. Uh, she has since died, but the kids still live in her house. And Detective Willis thinks maybe Rossi seems a bit too involved. He seems to be taking <laughs> ding, ding, this ding, ding. personally. And Rossi admits that he became attached to the kids. He apologizes for being a hard ass. Uh, and uh, Willis says, well, do you want to go in the house? And he doesn't want to go in the house. He's already gone over it a billion times. There's no evidence there left to find. There's no evidence just, left to find. And I hired a cleaning crew to go in there weekly to make sure of it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm certainly not a suspect, am I? <laughs> I happened to be there the day the parents were murdered. Uh, yeah. Why well, couldn't find a very clean. long con here? <laughs> that would be a twist. Um <laughs> Yeah, he was just hoping Detective Willis had something new, and he thanks him for coming out. Sorry to bother him. And Detective Willis says, don't worry, it was no bother. We cut back to the prison, and Hotch is telling Hardwick to sit down, but Hardwick wants the window open, and so he promises he'll answer some questions, but only once the window is open. They let him open the window, and he stands by there, sort of taking in the fresh air. And Reed starts the interview off. He's trying to confirm his birthday with them. When he asks about that, they explain, look, we really need to know about your childhood. So Hardwick starts talking about how he had a normal childhood and lived in a nice home and ate cereal every morning, yada, yada, yada. And Hotch immediately is like, look, cut the BS. We already know your story, okay? You grew up in a series of projects, uh, each one worse than the last you were a peeping Tom and you stole from the women's underwear drawers that you were looking at when you could. We know that you set a hundred small fires that got you sent to juvie for two years. Reed tells him, look, we've done extensive research. We've talked to everyone you've ever known, including your mother. And Hardwick is like, oh, how is good old Gene? And Hotch <laughs> says, oh, good old Gene is in the state hospital. <laughs> I was like, damn, Hotch. And uh, Reed is like, you know what? Lying to us isn't really possible, nor is it helpful. And Hardwick says, well, you guys are wrong. 
I started a lot more than a hundred fires. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is going to be good work, this guy. But I will say, at least they cast someone who, while he, he doesn't like really look intimidating, and yet you do understand being locked in a room with this guy why just the fact that he's killed all these people would would make reed this like <laughs> nervous it it, do, it does kind of uh make sense they cast a good guy for this yeah he seems like he seemed to me like well we wanted to get ron perlman to play this part but <laughs> he wasn't available and he was or he was too expensive and this guy worked uh yeah he kind of yeah. had that look to me um, <laughs> We then cut to a uh, a quick little, I call it a cute little scene. It's Garcia. She's in her office and uh, Kevin is there all of a sudden. And she's like, what are you doing here? Uh, you know, we just got busted. And well, he's not like, only, you know what? He, it, it's, it's, a very, it's, it's the old, he walks in the room and she's so focused she doesn't hear him. And it's like, ah, ah, yeah. ah, ah. <laughs> Right. True. Yes. <laughs> that, that's I, just, I found that very, very amusing. Good use of Nicholas Brenton's skills at ah! <laughs> <Which he laughs> exactly. <owned> on Buffy. <laughs> exactly. And he feels that Agent Rossi was very rude coming by her place after hours. And maybe, in fact, he should go have a talk with him and straighten him out. And Garcia's like, what are you talking about? And he says, you know what? I should be able to come up to my girlfriend's office and kiss her if I want. And Garcia is happy to hear the girlfriend word. Ooh, Ooh it's, uh, she she, she lightens up and yet at the yeah, same she, time <laughs> hunkers down. <laughs> yes, she is like, by the way, don't you get even within 100 yards of uh, Rossi because I, I will unleash a virus on your machine that'll reduce your electronic life to somewhere between a Commodore 64 and a block of cheese. Also, wink, wink, after she closes the door and opens it, and he looks like he was going to open it right back up. She's like, I'll call you later. It was a very cute scene. <laughs> yeah, Garcia getting equal parts thrilled, vengeful, and horny. <laughs> yes. We then cut over to the BAU jet. Garcia is giving Prentice, Morgan, and JJ of the details that she has on the double homicide case, but there's really not much. There's a latent fingerprint she's running a new check on, and she's trying to find some of Rossi's original files. And they're trying to figure out why this case is bothering Rossi so much. Why is he so concerned? Why is he so connected to it? It's not even a BAU type of case. He's seen much worse crimes. This was a bad one, but there's no other cases tied to it. It appears to be unique. And the local officials didn't ask for FBI help. So Morgan asks Garcia to double check any unsolved murders in the area or in the surrounding states during that time. Because he does think something this brutal doesn't seem like a one-time thing. And Prentice is just wondering out loud, what is it about this case for him? We then cut back to the prison, and Hardwick wants to know what they want to hear from him. He's like, you want to hear how Papa kicked me and Jean's ass every single day? That's the kind of thing you want to hear? And Reed is like, well, if it's true. And Hardwick says, well, no one gives a damn about the truth. And then we cut back to Garcia clickety-clacking away, and Rossi calls her, and she lets him know that she doesn't have any result on the fingerprint yet. Uh, she does have his notes, and she can email them to his PDA. 
He doesn't seem to know what a PDA is. You want to give them to a public display of affection? I believe I saw one <laughs> in your apartment last night. Well, that was private, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so she finds out what hotel he's staying at, and she says she'll fax them to the hotel. And then she has to admit to him that she has spilled the beans to the others about the case. And Rossi is pissed off, and especially so when she mentions that the others are on their way. He's like, damn it, I don't need any help. And he hangs up on her. Yeah, I mean, Rossi is like way, way out of control. This episode with the anger. And it, he's, it's like, it, it's almost like he's playing a tennis match. And like they keep hitting him back and forth across the net. One side is anger and one side is apologetic. So it's just like, ah! much like the toy i'm trying here man (laughs) i I get it and he's also saying i don't need any help but in the meanwhile he's asking garcia to help him he's asking this uh, local detective to help him i mean he does need help come on rossi he doesn't want to show weakness to hodge And to Prentice and to Morgan, you know, the people on the team that matter. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Not that uh, the, the computer girl. What was her name? <laughs> the researcher. Gonzalez. What was her name? <laughs> <laughs> so we go back to the prison. Hardwick is back standing by the window, sniffing the air, remarking that it's getting kind of cold this time of year. Warm days, cold nights. It'll be summer soon. And Hotch is like, yeah, but not for you. <laughs> I kind of laughed at that. He stares at Hotch for a second. He's like, no, not for me. And Reed is like, okay, so let's talk about specifics on this on your cases. Why did you choose Sheila O'Neill? And he says he doesn't know their names, so he needs to see a picture. And Hotch is like, uh, is that what you want? You just want to relive your crimes? Is that what's going on here? Hardwick is like, I have an excellent memory. Guess what? My victims meant nothing to me. They were a diversion. The moment he decided to kill them, they were dead. They did not matter. They might have begged, cried, bargained with them, but it really didn't matter because they didn't matter. He says, sometimes I just wish I was normal, had a regular life, but I didn't. Hotch is basically like, why did you ask us here? And Hardwick, he just wanted to sniff the air, AJ. He's on death watch, 24-hour isolation, until they kill him. And he says he just wanted to smell the air one last time. Thanks for giving me that. And Hotch is like, okay, fine. We're going to bounce. And (laughs) starts to pack their stuff. Reed starts grabbing his bag. And he goes over to ring the little bell for the guards to let them out. And he rings it a second time. And there's no answer. I, I I have a problem with this, AJ. I get it for the dramatic purposes of what's about to occur. But I have a problem that there's no answer. But anyway. What do you mean? <laughs> they look over at Hardwick and Hardwick is seems to know the time. He says uh, it's 517 and all the guards are at the open yard. It'll be 13 minutes before there's anyone around to answer that bell. And he picks up one of the grisly crime scene photos and he says, and it took me less than five minutes to do this. And we zoom in on Reed and Reed looks scared. Then we zoom in on Hardwick and he is smiling and giving an evil little laugh. 
And we zoom in on Hotch, and he just looks pissed off. So his normal face, basically. (laughs) Archival footage. (laughs) Exactly. And then it goes to a quick break. And uh, after a break, we're back on this tense scene. Hardwick is saying, you know, maybe during all their research, maybe they should have learned about the security tones. And Hotch is like, oh, I heard the tones. Did you hear the tones? Did you hear the tones? <laughs> I didn't hear the tones. Yeah. I heard the buzzer when he rang it. No, no. Er, when when he opened the window, when, I, I didn't I, hear the tones. Yeah, back when he opened the window, they did the tone. The tone went. It was a quick little tone. So uh, I heard the tone. I heard the tone and picked up the telephone. No. Uh, uh, so yeah, I it, at least the tone was there. I, I did like the writing of that aspect to it. Yeah. And, Look, again, this is a rinky-dink facility, which mm-hmm. it's weird that such a I don't know, serious serial killer is in this facility, of all facilities. But I guess if they only have to deal with one guy like this, then I guess it's okay. But you would think at least that that weird assistant warden would be sitting by the window listening <laughs> in. <laughs> I just don't believe not one single person stayed by behind to open the door, if they, especially after going over the fact that they don't have any weapons. Or no, oh, you sure you want us to unchain this guy? Like, really? Okay. It's a little <laughs> contrived. Sure. <laughs> I'm with you. So, however, no, back I, on- I'm going to say before we even yeah. move on, however, having, having read a book, about uh gacy and it was a book called the uh, final victim or last victim and it was by this teenage kid who like just started pen palling with gacy and eventually went to visit him at the facility and gacy being the serial killer he was ran that facility and so he kind of took advantage of this kid because the guards did all leave and not stay there so you know, there could be some sort of underhanded you know slip you a 20 and don't don't be by the door for 10 minutes kind of thing going on there you know it's the underworld it's not a place (laughs) you want to be in i could see it so we're back on this tense scene and hardwick is uh saying you know what if i uh execute two fbi agents they're not gonna really kill me so assuming I'm assuming you meant like next week they're gonna like yeah keep them. I, I assumed he meant that there'll be a they'll at least want to actually officially charge him and have a trial because <laughs> yeah. he's not gonna plead, he's gonna plead not guilty and you know they want to put those murders on his record yeah obviously he tells them they basically saved his life by coming there but Hutch ain't having it he's taking off his jacket he's taking off his tie and he says unfortunately I'm not some five foot hundred pound girl. All your life, you've gone after victims who couldn't fight back. And the rest of that time, you spent looking over your shoulder, worried about that knock on the door, and that there would be someone like me on the other side coming to put you away. Homeboy, at your core, you are nothing but a coward. And Hotch is ready to box. (laughs) (laughs) Hardwick starts to advance on him. And Reed, who has been kind of cowering back, looking frightened this whole time, interrupts. And says, don't you want to know why you killed those girls? And Hardwick pauses and he's like, what? And Reed says, he can explain it to him. He knows why he kills them. He can tell him 
why he is what he is. <laughs> yeah. Look hard against his face like <laughs> stops dead in his tracks. We then cut real quick to Rossi in a bar and he's nursing a drink. And that's when Prentice, Morgan, and JJ come in. He's telling them to go home. He doesn't want them here. He doesn't want their help. They're like, you know, come on, let's bounce some ideas around. Maybe we can put some fresh eyes on the case, et cetera, et cetera. And he's like, look, this isn't even a BAU case. And JJ is all JJ here. And she's like, you know what? I can make anything I want a BAU case. (laughs) I know how to do paperwork. And and Rossi's just looking at them. He's like, why do you guys even care? And Princess says, because you care. Aww. Aww, right. All we're missing is, is Vin Diesel. We're good family. <laughs> <laughs> now let's get our cars and be fast and furious on the speedway. <laughs> family. Exactly. Family. We uh, cut to back to the prison and Hardwick seems to want to know what it is that Reed has to say. And then Reed goes into this monologue and they do that thing where they sort of cut off, sort of bring down the sound of one of his sentences and then bring it back up as if the sense, next sentence he's saying is taking place sometime after more sense. So they're trying to extend the length of time that this whole explanation Yeah, yeah they're doing a mixed dissolve sequence, which is going to tell us that time is passing and passing and passing. And Hardwick is listening intently, hanging on every single word. Uh, but really, even yeah. with what we could hear, it's blah, 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 Scientifically speaking. Yeah, Reed is just going off. Basically, it sounds like he's giving this guy a profile, you know. Yeah, he gets all into this guy's hypothalamus being stuck on a primitive level and how set obsession with sex is crosswired with pain, blah, blah, blah. And you became a sexual sadist and etc cetera, etc cetera. and then he does finally kind of wind up he's saying earlier you said your victims never had a chance i think you know deep down it was you who never had a chance <laughs> i absolve thee of thy <laughs> sins <laughs> <They're monster. laughs> and and as he's saying this all of a sudden we hear keys jangling in the door lock And a guard comes in and he's looking at them, asking if everything is all right in here. And Hotch is like, it's fine. We're done. And the guards start to chain Hardwick back up, put his cuffs back on, etc. And as Reed and Hotch are leaving, Hardwick asks Reed if he thinks it's true that he never had a chance. And Reed is just like, I don't know, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Like, in every way, indicating... He was just talking, talking, talking until somebody actually finally came and yeah. opened the door. I don't know. I was improv, man. It was all improv. <laughs> yeah. My next suggestion, can I have an unsolved? Can I have a mental defect? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Give me a city. Indianapolis, thank you very much. All right, here we go. <laughs> we cut then back to the bar, and the team is sitting around a table. Rossi is finally telling them, about the case, this case that has haunted him for 20 years. Apparently that day he was there on another case and he was, that was over with. He was being driven to the airport from a local cop 
who I'm going to assume was Officer Giles, but it could be. he doesn't sure. mention sure. that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, a, a call came over the radio about some children screaming, and they were nearby the scene, so he agreed to help out, and they responded to the scene, and they were the first responders. And that's when they found, well, what they found. Morgan throws down the file. That's what you found. The parents were murdered. They were killed with an axe that they had bought on Christmas Eve to cut down a tree. Uh, The axe was wiped clean, so there were no prints on it. And now Rossi always associates this case with Christmas. And ever since then, he hasn't even been able to put up a tree himself. The guy only apparently hurt the parents. He didn't do anything to the kids. And Prentice points out that by using a weapon founding at the scene and the fact that he left some potential witnesses alive, this means he was disorganized. We get back into that phraseology of organized versus disorganized. Morgan points out, yeah, but the the fact that there was no evidence suggests that he was actually organized. So JJ brings up the fingerprint and Rossi says, well, it was behind the bedroom door. He actually doesn't think that the killer knew it was there. Rossi says there was no match for the fingerprint that he could ever find. He's been over this case a million times. He keeps thinking that if there was just one more piece of evidence, one more thing that he had to go on, maybe he could solve this thing. And uh, Princess points out this guy could be dead. And Rossi is just like, no, no, no. Morgan points out that if the guy is dead, Rossi could never know what happened. And Rossi explains how he could hear the kids still screaming when they pulled up to the house, even though he's seen so much death and pain, that sound of the kids that drifted down to him. It's been stuck with him for 20 years. He can still hear them screaming every night. He can hear them crying. And if he can't tell them that the person that did this will never do it again, he's not sure that the screaming will ever stop. I mean, the Mr. Barnero who wrote the episode given Joe Montana a gift, two monologues in the same scene. <laughs> yeah. That's something. So, uh, you know, Joe Montana can went at, at this point of his career can still act <laughs> good stuff, man. Yes, indeed. We then cut to see that there's this couple that's kissing in a Jeep. And this is the third sister, which is not a Obi-Wan reference case. <laughs> Paying attention to that. But she's No, because she's she's getting no internet plaque whatsoever. (laughs) All right, And And, uh, she's being dropped off at her house, and Connie comes out of the house and yells for her to get in. And Alicia is complaining. Uh, you know, Connie treats her like she's a parent or something, but she's She's not her mother, basically telling her she needs to stop tripping. And the dude she was kissing drives off in the Jeep, even though he never got her phone number. But he he clearly sees that he can't mess around with the sister here. Yeah, this is a family situation that, uh, you know, you don't want nothing to do with. (laughs) Right. worth it. (laughs) And uh, as he's driving away, the BAU SUV pulls up. Rossi gets out. He walks up to them. He's like, hey, Connie. And she is just mad that Rossi has showed up. She thought he'd get the hint when they stopped calling him or responding to his calls. Look, they don't want him there. It's been 20 years. 
They just need to move on. And he just keeps reminding them of what happened, basically. Rossi looks hurt. The rest of the team is standing out there and they kind of just look awkward. And Rossi says, okay, you know what? I'm going to leave you guys alone. And Connie tells him, oh, yeah, by the way, you can also stop with all the gifts, the toys and stuff. Uh, We don't need constant reminders of the worst day of our life. And Rossi's like, uh, I never sent you any gifts. Damn. And they cut to a break. (laughs) You might as well put that stinger in. Yeah, exactly. That's the one thing that was missing. The one more piece of evidence he needed. Uh, Gifts? I never sent you any gifts, David. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and so that was why I was wrong before when I thought she was thinking of the killer. She was thinking it was Rossi sending her the, the gifts the whole time. And, you know, as as hurt as Rossi was when, and you could see the hurt on his face, which he was like, just go away, stop bothering us, leave us alone. And, and the hurt on his face. I think he was even more hurt when he saw the gifts. <laughs> he was like, you thought I bought you that yeah. cheap flop? <laughs> <laughs> that crap? <laughs> Purple monkey? <laughs> Did you see the hotel I was staying at? <laughs> yeah we come back from the break we're inside the house taking pictures of all the crappy toys that connie alicia and georgie have gotten and rossi is basically saying look i wish you guys would have told me about this and she explains again she thought he was the one giving those gifts and at first they liked getting those gifts but soon after time it, it would just remind them of that night they ask how they usually would get these gifts, and they explain that they, they got the gifts usually on their porch. And Connie mentions this year her gift was in her car on her dashboard, uh, which does cause her to remember the pickup truck that she saw the other night. But again, she thought it was probably Rossi just sort of looking after her. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice moment here because Connie, despite the fact that you know she has had this hatred of Rossi. Now that she realizes that it wasn't Rossi, that like the warm feelings coming back and she reverts back to, to like being embarrassed at her job. She's like, you know, where I uh, work. And <laughs> not going to say stripper. Cause you know, right. She, Rossi's the closest thing to a father she has weirdly. Yeah. Rossi says, look, this guy is obsessed and guess who's our specialist on that type of crime. Mr. Morgan. Oh, uh, player, player, know all about the players. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so, Morgan, what do you think we're looking at? And Morgan says, well, there's two kinds of offenders that would send gifts to the families. There's number one, the sadist who wants to make their victim relive the crime. And number two, we got the guilt-laden offenders who are really just desperately trying to apologize Based on the kind of gifts that are being left, this case doesn't seem to be like the work of a sadist because it's not really the, the gifts aren't really reminders of the crime. So we're probably looking at the guilt laden type here. And the toys that are being sent are really kind of cheap toys, basically. They, they look like the kind of thing maybe some child would send. And Morgan points out it, that it very rarely happens, but sometimes. An unsub who feels this much guilt did the crime unintentionally. Um, those type of offenders tend to be developmentally disabled. They have a low IQ. They tend to be generally physically large and, and very strong, strong enough to actually hurt someone accidentally. 
And Prentice drops her literary knowledge and says, oh, like Lenny in Of Mice and Men. And Morgan is like, exactly. Rossi points out that someone like that would need help then because there was no evidence at the scene. And that's not the work of somebody with a low IQ. And Morgan points out typically an older relative, specifically a parent, would help uh, an unsub like this. And they would rationalize the crime that it was an accident and that their child wouldn't intentionally do anything like this. This type of unsub is like an overgrown child. Morgan tells JJ to let Garcia know not to look for other homicides in the area, but rather to go look for a string of less serious offenses, things that happened at parks and playgrounds involving children, not necessarily children that were injured or abused because an unsub like this wants to actually play with children, not really trying to hurt them. But due to their large size, they probably frightened people. And Prentice tells Rossi that this is probably the piece that he was looking for. Yeah, thanks, Rossi, for summing that up for us. We already knew that, but cool. (laughs) Exactly. We then cut to Reed and Hotch, and they're driving away from the uh, prison. And Hotch is telling Reed it was smart of him keeping hard work talking until the guards came. And Reed is like, yeah, I do some of my best work under intense terror. (laughs) Uh, You know, quite frankly, the scene had ended there. I'd have been been happy. (laughs) Yeah, agreed. Hotch apologizes for antagonizing the situation. And Reed is like, you didn't antagonize it. And and Hotch is like, no, 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 I really didn't help. And Reed admits, yeah, you really didn't. (laughs) And uh, after a beat, Hotch decides to tell Reed, What's going on in his mind? He's like, you know what? Haley wants me to sign these papers, divorce papers, uncontested, so that none of us waste any money on lawyers. And Reed is like, oh, you don't want to? And Hotch says, what he wants, he's not going to get. Because he don't want the divorce at all. Exactly. We cut to Garcia. She's talking to the team. She's found many open petty crimes in the area of Indiana over the last 20 years. Strange thing is a large portion of those crimes only occurred at one time of the year in the last week of March and in the first week of April every year. It's the March Madness. (laughs) (laughs) It's Bobby Knight. Clearly it's Bobby Knight. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Hoosiers would have been a whole different movie. Uh, Then even stranger... The same kind of crimes crop up again, but in Springfield, Illinois, for the next two weeks after that. And then for two weeks after that, the same crimes pop up in Des Moines, Iowa. So they figure that this guy, whoever he is, is traveling. They speculate maybe a salesman, but again, to point out, you know, someone with that IQ probably wouldn't be a salesman. And meanwhile, we see Rossi is looking over all of the cheap toys and stuffed animals And something is occurring to him. And he says, hey, what about a carnival? And that makes Connie perk up because uh, she says, hey, the last thing we did together as a family was go to a carnival the day before. And uh, we had to leave early because there was this clown that made her this funky looking balloon animal and then kind of followed her around. Her mom got spooked by this. And so they left. And the other kids are like, you didn't tell us this. And she's like, I didn't even remember this till now. And uh, so they decide to tell Garcia to check for carnival permits. 
And Garcia starts to clickety-clackety. And clearly she clickety-clacked very quickly because, boom, we're at the carnival. <laughs> yes. We cut immediately to outside of the carnival. Uh, the carnival is in the process of being struck down. The workers are, you know, taking down all the booths, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The team pulls up. Morgan and JJ are told by Rossi to walk around and see what they can find, just look things over. Meanwhile, Prentice and him walk over to a guy that seems to be in charge. He's barking orders. He's a loudmouth jerk. He must be in charge of the carnival. Exactly. Yeah. So JJ and Morgan, we see them walking past various carnival stalls being taken down. Morgan says he can't believe people spend money playing those fixed games. And JJ corrects him, men. And he's like, what? She's like, it's not people, it's men. Only men would waste $50 trying to win a $3 stuffed animal. <laughs> Truth. Zing. Truth. <laughs> I have to say, yeah, I did that once. <laughs> yeah. Ken Todd, once they've guessed your weight, <laughs> you can't laugh about it. It's like a time. I could get into that story, but it's not a happy memory. Anyway, we cut to Prentice and Rossi talking to this guy that they spotted before. They note that he seems to be uh, pulling out of the area in a hurry. And he looks at them a bit suspicious. He says, well, we got to set up where the money is right now, and it's not here. So Rossi asks him where he's headed to next. And he says, Springfield. And we cue the scary music as Rossi says they want to talk to him about one of his clowns. <laughs> then we cut over to see Morgan and JJ. JJ says, clown. They spot a big guy. He's got cl- he's got clown makeup on. Not like full blown. He's not a full blown clown. He's just a dude with his face painted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a big dude. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he seems a little bit off. So like, yeah, certainly he... Yeah, he seems like okay. He's developmentally disabled. This is clearly the the suspect, the person they're looking for. Absolutely, uh, but yeah, it, it is kind yeah. of funny. Not not like Morgan over there. It's like clown. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and he does look at them and sees them looking at him, and he starts to run away. So they have to do a little chase uh, over the carnival grounds. Meanwhile, we cut back to Prentice and Rossi talking to the guy, and he's saying, clowns? This isn't a circus. And Prentice is like, you don't have any clowns in your carnival? Rossi says, how about a guy that makes balloon animals? The owner is like, might have. <laughs> and, he's the worst liar ever, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really? Might have? <laughs> might have. Might have. Could be. Could be. I can't say for sure. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, things being what they are these days, <laughs> they start to ask how long this guy has worked for him. And finally, this guy is like, what is this? What What are you asking me about? And Rossi says, the guy we're talking about that we're looking for may have been complained about. He made kids uncomfortable. You might have gotten reports from parents. And the, the guy they're talking to starts to deny this, and Rossi flashes his badge. And there was some some kind of music cue, the music that was playing in the background. He did his badge, and I swear the music went, dun, 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 <laughs> like he says, uh, Agent Rossi, FBI. And I swear the music did a little take right there, a little, there, bit, little, little drum beat or something. A little in the background, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, he then says, Rossi then says, maybe you have a son. What he's saying here is this guy would have been a big problem because of all of the complaints. There's no way you would keep a guy around like that unless there was some sort of family. It's all about family. Important connection. Yeah. Unless it was family. And the owner says, you know what? I don't really have time. I'm calling him the owner. I don't know if he owns this place, but. He uh, says he doesn't have time for this. And Rossi tells him, well, you need to make some time. So they break him down, basically. And he finally admits it. And he says, look, he didn't want to hurt anybody. And it's partly his own fault because he was the one that was busy. He was trying to fix one of the rides that was breaking down. And the guy just wandered off. He just wanted to play with the little girl. He didn't mean to do anything. He went into the parents' room by the mistake, and the and the father came after him and hit him with the axe, and that got Joey mad. It's understandable. You know, you get hit with an axe, you get mad. <laughs> it's understandable. <laughs> he was real sorry he did it as soon as he did it, and he even put them back in the bed, and I got there too late. I couldn't save them. But you know what I do every year? I make him remember. I bring him back to the scene. And I even make him pick out something from the joints, he says, to give to them. I make sure he never forgets. He's a good boy. He's a good boy. We cut to JJ and Morgan, who have found Joey. He's hiding under some kind of platform. They order him out. And Morgan, I mean, I thought he was being a little aggressive here. Clearly, the guy is mentally challenged. And Morgan's like, get your ass out. And I was like, come on. I mean, well, I, you know, you know. <laughs> on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, I mean, Morgan doesn't know. It, he could be faking. They could be wrong. And let's let's be honest here. He knew enough to run. He knew enough to hide. True. Don't take any chances. That is true. The, the guy starts screaming for his dad, which Prentice Rossi and the carnival guy hear. So they rush over to the spot. And he's like, the dad is like, don't hurt him. He won't fight back. And the whole scene felt kind of sad to me. Oh, it was very sad. It felt sad it for this, sad because, this guy. I mean, even though the owner father should have known better and, you know, turned him in. Um, I mean, you understand the motivation for him not, but it's like, he's just like, don't, don't, don't hurt him. Stay down. Stay down. Don't, don't. Yeah. There's yeah. no winners here. There's no winners here because because yeah. you know this isn't an unsub who's like a serial killer gonna go out and kill other people. It was it was unintentional because he doesn't know. But so it yeah. sad all around, just very very sad. We then finally cut to Rossi, who's talking with the Galens, and it turns out he is giving them the house. He explains that it's theirs anyway. He's just giving it back. It's been cleaned and maintained. It'll probably sell for a decent price. I'm glad he said that because for a minute I thought he was like, yes, move back to the house where your parents were murdered. Well, I mean, um, it's an option though. At least, at least, you know, if, if you yeah. want, you, you can make this out or you can sell it. Like, you know, it's all good. Either way, yep. it's yours. Yeah. Connie is like, oh, you don't really have to do this. Rossi is saying, you know what? That's what my pa- your parents would have wanted me to do. You, He would have wanted you guys to have it. Alicia hugs him. Georgie thanks him. And uh, he gives the charms back to Connie. 
says, yeah, this was your mother. Uh, your grandmother gave this to me to hold on to. But now I think it's time you have them. And he starts to leave. And Connie runs over to him, hands the charms back to him. She says she wants him to have them. And she asks if it's okay if she calls him sometime, you know, just to let him know how they are. And Rossi says, anytime, kiddo, anytime. And he gets in his car, drives off. Yeah, and they do the sappy thing where the sappy music is playing and Rossi turns back and looks at them and they're the kids for half a second. And then he yes, turns back exactly. and they're back to normal. And of course, that as contrived and as manipulative as it is, I missed up every time. <laughs> It's it's ah closure <laughs> and uh, you know I, yes, I mean, the only music. thing that would have made like <laughs> hit on the head even more if, if the song that was playing was and I can sleep without hearing the screams no more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we do have a, a a final few scenes here. We cut over to the BAU office. Morgan, Rossi, JJ, and Prentice are arriving back. Morgan spots Reed, asks him how Connecticut was. And Reed <laughs> is like, oh, ultimately uneventful, <laughs> which was a nice response given what they actually went through. Yeah. He tells Rossi that there's someone waiting to speak to him in his office. And we zoom over to his office and see Ke- Kevin Lynch standing up. And uh, JJ gives a slight little smile as she realizes what's going on. And Kevin says, Asian Rossi, we need to talk about Penelope man to man. And Rossi is like, "Uh, okay, man to man. (laughs) And Prentice gives a look like, what the what? And Morgan is saying, wait, what about Penelope? And JJ just starts singing, Garcia and Kevin sitting in a tree. (laughs) And Morgan's like, what? Are you serious? And Prentice is laughing and Reed is like, wait, what? What's going on? He doesn't- wait, that song meant something? You got some information out of that? <laughs> <laughs> he just doesn't get it. Literally doesn't understand what that song I meant. think this is just the perfect, <laughs> perfect way to show these characters and in interaction. And when they do this type of stuff, you know, if, if you're a little short, don't pad it out with a five minute montage. Just put a little character scene in here. And it's perfect that Reed would not have had this experience at all out of the <laughs> that he was. Yeah, exactly. And Prentice, she doesn't even have the patience. She's like, you know what, Reed, never mind. And Reed is just still going, what, what? As we cut away <laughs> over to Hotch's office. And uh, Hotch is there. We see he's got the divorce papers in his hand. And he's voicing over the closing quote. There is no formula for success. Actually, nowadays, he could have just said there is no formula, but that's another another issue. Uh, he says there is no formula for success except perhaps an unconditional acceptance of life and what it brings. Arthur Rubenstein. Hutch looks at the papers, turns it to the last page, signs his signature, leans back in his chair, and the camera zooms out as we... Zoom out of the BAU office and the episode ends. And the episode ends with a completely faulty scene because Hotch has signed a document and he flips to that last page where it is clear that there is a witness to the signature and a notary saying that they have witnessed the signature and neither of them are there to witness said signature or to notarize the document. 
this is a fraud. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot do you this. Cannot do this. <laughs> so there's that aspect of it, which I was, you know, maybe it's a subconscious thing. You know, obviously they trust Hotch. They know who he is and they're not, this is never going to come up again, <laughs> but aha! <laughs> it's just it's just wrong. <laughs> the one thing I did notice though, and this would not have jumped out at you, but the name of the witness to the signature uh, was Andy Swan. And the name jumped out at me because uh, Andy Swan uh, is, was also the name of a character that we will meet in a, about three seasons from now. Uh, so I did some research to see what was up there. And uh-huh. Andy Swan, uh, they put that name there because he was the producer of the documentary uh, on Matthew Gray Goldberg's life. And so he was a friend of the show, and fr- he had worked with Joe Montana before, and he was a friend of Matthew Gray Goldberg. So they just put his name in there as a little goof kind of thing, like, oh, it's Andy Swan, and put your name in the show kind of thing. Uh, three years later, uh, unfortunately, Andy Swan will die. And to honor him, they oh. will name this other character on the show after him. So while, you know, Andy Swan, I'm like, oh, I know Andy Swan. That's a character from the show. It's like, this is someone who, like, was important to them. And so I just wanted to note there that uh, they, they, you know, when people are important to the show, they'll kind of sneak references in there and whatnot. Right. uh, Again, he did not witness this signing. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Very, very interesting. Nice, nice background. Thank you. Um, but oh, no, I, th- I thought, I thought, what did you think about, I like the fact that they, neither story was enough to fill a whole episode, but by smooshing them together, I felt they, they bounced back and forth enough. Yeah, the timing wasn't perfect, but I appreciated the fact that they didn't try and pad out that clown story for another 20 minutes. Right. And I also appreciate that they didn't try to flush that 20 minute story into a 60 minute story. Like, I wish they would do this more often. <laughs> Right. I was even going to say when uh, we do our barometer, which we are about to do now, which is where we talk about if the team has won the episode or not. I was going to ask you if you wanted to split up the cases um, because it really more than most times seemed like we had two different full cases yeah, going on. Uh, they don't do this often on the show, but they do do it occasionally. I think you just got we got to take it episode by episode. Uh, which is why Fair. I'm calling this one a push, because uh, clearly, although they got out of the the first, because the first one's not really a case, so they didn't have to solve it, but they got into trouble way over their heads reading Hotch. Uh, that could have ended very poorly. Mm-hmm. So technically, that was more of a loss than anything else. Uh, and even though they did solve the case, you know, it's a 20 year old cold case, and it was really just lock of the draw that they haven't to mention the toys because otherwise that case was over uh so i think it was probably a uh, half leaning on the side of a loss and uh, very much over the 50 percent line for a win so let's just call this one a push very fair the other thing we like to do at the end of our recap aj is a little thing i like to call three questions it's a little quiz inspired by the episode we've uh, just watched absolutely so let's Let's start off with something I found hysterical. So uh, what I like to do sometimes is I I like to see, you know, who are the actors in the episode and maybe spin off on their careers and things like that. Well, I happen to catch this name. The guy who was making out with Alicia in the Jeep. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. He was credited as being played by a guy named Rando Thomas. (laughs) 
Oh no, rando! I just love the fact that he's just some rando. <laughs> yep, his name was is actually yeah. rando in real life. So I went to his IMDb page. Oh boy! And I would like for you to tell me. I'm going to give you four choices. Three of them are actual roles that have been credited on IMDb to rando. <laughs> One of them is not. So which which of okay. these is not a role played by Rando Thomas? <laughs> is it A, bartender in Halo from Fight Club? Is it Cougars football player from The Waterboy? Is it Dangerous Driver from Bruce Almighty? Or is it NASA Technician from Armageddon? <laughs> oh, and he tends to play rando roles, doesn't he? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> uh, I wonder if that's his given name or a stage name. I think it's fun it either is. way. Um, <laughs> he was named after his dad, but I'm, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, AJ, for no reason at all, except for based on his look in this episode, I'm going to say he was not a, what is it? A NASA technician, NASA technician in Armageddon. All right. Choice D. You would think that this rando. <laughs> However, this rando was indeed a NASA technician in Armageddon. <laughs> he was a football okay. player in Waterboy, and he was a dangerous driver in Bruce Almighty. What he was not was bartender in Halo from Fight Club. That's a credit <laughs> of Michael Seamus Wiles, who played Hardwick. <laughs> oh, wow. He was oh, bartender in Halo. I see what you did Fight there. <laughs> uh, hey, right arm for both of them. <laughs> Good job. All right. Now, let's question two. Uh, Nicole Tom, who played Connie in this episode, uh, appeared just this year, 2022, as a competitor on a celebrity edition of what long-running TV competition show? Huh. I don't know. I am just going to – I did not watch this year's – edition of celebrity big brother the only people i can remember who were on that were todd bridges todd willis bridges and uh and and the guy from uh rupaul's drag race whose name is not coming to my head right now uh hall yes todrick hall and i have and i don't remember the other big brother celebrities but it's also, unfortunately, the only celebrity edition of any reality show that I can remember coming on. So that's going to be my choice. I'm going to go with Celebrity Big Brother. All right. Celebrity Big Brother is not correct. Uh, this would be the 24th season of this show and I believe the seventh celebrity edition of a show from the Food Network called Worst Cooks in America. Uh. Yeah, never heard of it, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting fun fact, Nicole Tom has a twin brother named David, and David played Georgie in this episode. Ah. So they were brother and sister, which is why a lot of that interaction was very natural. Uh, unfortunately, their other sibling is much older, until so she couldn't play the youngest. <laughs> 
Is it Lauren Tom? Uh, That's the other Tom I know. I don't believe. I believe it was Heather Tom, if I uh, uh, okay. memory serves. There is a Lauren Tom, yes, uh, actress as well. Uh, all right. You ready? My favorite question. Let's go. Yeah. All right. Let's do this. Katad, what is the plot going to be in our next episode? Criminal Minds, Season 3, Episode 15, entitled A Higher Power. A Higher Power. Is it A, a spontaneous surge in suicides? Seems suspicious to the BAU. So they're off to Pittsburgh to see if there's any there, there. Is it B? Salt Lake City summons the BAU team after four homicides seem to indicate that someone is way too into Mormon fundamentalism for anyone's liking. Is it C? The BAU is summoned when a 12-step program in Atlanta seems to have at least one member practicing a 13th step. Murder. Or is it D? When several bodies with connections to a San Diego cult start turning up, the BAU tries to find proof that the so-called prophet is to blame. A higher power. A higher power. AJ. I like to always tell you what two I've narrowed it down to in my head. Always fun for before me. I, <laughs> before I invariably pick the wrong one. And I'm going to say that I'm in my head for some reason. I'm going to say it's between the Mormons in Salt Lake City and and can you repeat D? Because that that was the other one I thought it was. D was when several bodies with connections to a San Diego cult start turning up. The BAU tries yes. to find proof that the so-called profit is to blame. Yeah. Uh, I think D sounds like the more likely of the two. I am going with choice D. All right. Choice D is your pick. B is a Salt Lake City and Mormons, and that's really just under the banner of heaven, essentially. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that, that, that's where I got that from. Or maybe it's the Warren Jeffs documentary that just dropped on Netflix a couple <laughs> weeks ago. So uh, there's a lot going on there with the sister wives. Uh, so no, no, we're not going there. Uh, I just, I, I, I want to take full credit for the creative writing here. The 13th step, murder. Made that <laughs> one up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I liked it, though. But I'm sorry to say, sir, that we're going to be going to Pittsburgh for the spontaneous surge in suicides. <laughs> that seems suspicious. Of course. The telltale alliteration would have given that away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, usually when I break it down to two, I usually have one one of the right ones, but I didn't even in that one, so. You got the wrong one, baby. <laughs> it is what it is. Well... That was certainly fun. Uh, thank you, AJ. And folks, thank you guys out there for listening. That is our show for this week. We hope you had a great time as usual. Please be sure to subscribe to rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to spread the word and let your friends know about us. You can also write to us at felloniouspundits at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter 
at podcast underscore pundits. For AJ Mass, this is Katan's Fensgard saying goodbye and keep profiling. Wheels up. Was it from spite or just sheer delight? You stooped so low. Now I want to know why you killed the clown. Thompson Twins. <laughs>